The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Woo! 660 are having a concert. I haven't seen them for like two weekends. This is Gone by Lunchtime. It's Wednesday, April 28, a special Pink Moon edition of our podcast. My name is Toby Mann. Hi, Heidi my Annabelle Lee Mather. Tēnā koe, tēnā kōrua. Tēnā koe, Ben Thomas. Hello. Uh, and thank you to Jonathan Pierce, who is running the show for us today. It says, Jonathan, it says podcast at thespinoff.co.nz on a piece of paper attached to your desk. Am I meant to read that out? Uh, at all times, yeah. Podcast at thespinoff.co.nz. <coughs> Uh, big thanks to spin-off members uh, for making it possible. We wouldn't be here today without your support. We wouldn't be dead. We'd, we just wouldn't be doing the podcast. A um, couple of big stories in recent days. Big stories. We've had the health reforms announced, and we've had a, the kind of rare sight of a foreign policy uh, story in the big headlines. Uh, we'll get on to those in a minute, but there is one story that towers above all the other stories mm. this week, and that is, of course... Uh, the site of open warfare, bloodthirsty, vicious, untrammeled, ruthless warfare between Jacinda Ardern and Selena Gomez, Ben. This is incredible. This is the greatest celebrity beef that we have seen in the 21st century so far. Selena Gomez came after our Prime Minister, the Queen of Five Million, mm. <laughs> she, said, she said, you've helped New Zealand fight COVID-19 domestically. Now we need your help globally to ensure everyone can access the vaccine. Oh! She... <laughs> She did not. She she took the 24N bus Mm -hmm. to Sandringham, but she got off at trouble because (laughs) (laughs) Jacinda Ardern, the most powerful woman in the world, copyright Mm. Madeleine Chapman, Mm. came back on her as as Mm. News Hub, which is basically the world star hip-hop of New Zealand political reporting, said Mm -hmm. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern fires back at Selena Gomez over COVID-19 tweet. Can we get a few few bars of this in? Can you give me a beat, Toby? <laughs> okay, Jonathan, can you put something over Toby in the final mix? Oh. No, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> 
New Zealand is a strong supporter of COVAX and has already contributed New Zealand's 17 million to COVAX to help fund free vaccines to 92 low-income economies. Oh! Coming with fire! Selena you later, Gomez! <laughs> Selena Goner, Mears! <laughs> It was beautiful. Okay, no, there's more. Wait, there's wait, more. Wait, wait, wait. Like, okay. And recently we announced that New Zealand will donate enough COVID-19 vaccines for more than 800,000 people to COVAX for the distribution to developing nations with a focus on the Pacific. Whoa! <laughs> this is Shin, Shin just takes Selena Gomez back to school. She took her back to spring breakers. Jacinda Ardern jumping up and down on the mattress going, look at my shit, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, finally, <laughs> New Zealand is committed to equitable access to safe and effective vaccines globally. globally. Calling it, calling it. Ashley Bloomfield is having a 1pm press conference because we have a new COVID fatality. It's up by one child star. It's over. She's already dead. Stop recording. <laughs> There's nothing else we can add to. I, I feel like we, we should just, just sign off wrap now because yeah. that was just gold. Yeah, I mean, the uh, so serious is the damage that has been wrought that Andrew Little had to announce a massive overhaul of the health system to deal <laughs> with the corpse of um, to deal with the corpse. The, the 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 health reform. I don't know. I don't. I feel. I feel like everything else now seems trivial after we've covered off that major issue, Annabelle. But there was, it's true, to be said, that there was a health reform announced in recent days by Andrew Little. I heard about that. The heart of it was that there are currently 20 DHBs. There was a big review conducted by Heather Simpson in which she said we should have fewer DHBs. I think she said eight. What, eight or six, ten? Six, or six to eight or six, something. Six, it was six, a strange six, number. Fewer, fewer than the current number. And Andrew Little liked that idea so much. He went even further, and now there are going to be no DHBs at all. They're all going to be gone. There's going to be a single health agency, Health New Zealand, I think they're calling it provisionally, like a national health service, and a Māori health authority. Mm. Although, with some real teeth, it seems like, um, as opposed to being a kind of little nice-to-have-on-the-side thing. What did you make of it all? Well... I think, you know, all of us on this podcast have been critical of the government at times that they haven't been audacious enough in their leadership, so it's nice to see them doing something big and bold. Um, I think it would have been helpful if some numbers had been thrown around um, to show that there's going to be some serious investment in health, which obviously we haven't invested enough in. Mm. Um, the budget's think, going to be interesting, isn't it, to see whether there's some, some proper cash yeah, being thrown at it. There's been, you know, criticism that it lacks detail, but as Little has said, in terms of the Māori Health Authority, it's, be, it's being co-designed. And um, and that process is still underway, which I think is a, a reasonable response. I think that, um, I mean, it's exciting to think that um, Māori might have a bit of tenoranga tiratanga over their health. I'm interested to see, I mean, you can see how it's going to work in terms of primary health care. I'm interested to see what happens in terms of things like pharmac and um, what happens when you end up being admitted to hospital and those sorts of things, mm. but interesting times. There was, uh, it was one of those, the response was 
quite overwhelmingly positive. There were certainly some 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 detractors, um, but more positive than I might have than I expected. And a lot of it been a lot of the commentary ended with, as Annabelle hinted, but the devil is in the detail, or that rem-, you know there is there is a lot of that remains to be seen. The devil is in the detail, Ben Thomas. Yeah, and any time you're talking about a reform as big as shaking up the entire health sector, obviously there's lots of scope for things to go wrong. On the other hand, the direction of travel is good. Um, The idea with DHBs and their forerunners was that uh, you had local control. You you were responsive to the community. You love local democracy. Even going as far, yeah, under the Helen Clark government as, you know, where DHPs themselves were sort of established, Mm. having democratically elected boards. Mm. Now, anyone who's voted in DHB elections knows that's just a complete sham. You get a wall of, you know, indistinguishable names. You vote for a couple who have doctor next to them. You rank the one person you've heard of last out of 30 using the nerdiest TV voting system. And and over the years, you know, since those were established 20 years ago or so, more and more power has been taken away from those elected members so that now they're not even a majority on the DHB board itself. And the idea of splitting it into regions, which, uh, you know, all of these little contestable 20 different boards, that came from the, the national government earlier. And the idea there was, in keeping with the 90s national sort of ideology, that all of these DHBs would be ruthlessly honed by fierce competition. Good ideas mm. would be exported from one district health board across the country. What we heard from the minister during his announcement was that instead what we seem to have is sort of pockets of dysfunction <laughs> that can't be reached by best practice uh, because of this lack of centralisation. It leads to a lot of duplication in terms of things like um, you know, services, procurement, planning, asset management. So a, a very good step. Um, there, there are a few things that can be improved by centralising them with central government. District health boards are one and local government is another. The question of regional well, um, community representation is an interesting one because, like you say, you know, the voting papers turn up and there's some pretty random people looking, uh, you know, who, who are on there and don't appear to be well qualified. But then, having said that, you get people like Jacoby Pullane in the Hawke's Bay who took a really principled approach over the Oranga Tamariki issue of uplifting um, newborn babies from the maternity suite. So, how you strike the balance between making sure that the community does have a voice about the issues that matter to them. I wonder in it, part whether it's interesting. Whether the in the slipstream of the COVID response where people saw the Ministry of Health, which is not the same thing as Health New Zealand as a national health service, but uh, is a sort of mostly centralised response responding quite quickly and effectively, made this more palatable as an idea because it does still leave the threat that you both touched on of a kind of centralised Wellington, Mm. at worst, bureaucracy who may or may not be in touch with the realities of Mm. health provision in corners of the country that aren't immediately in their sightline. 
But, you know, in the same way that we don't need a starship hospital in every city in New Zealand and certainly not in every town in New Zealand because sick children, you know, are <laughs> uplifted and taken to starship in Auckland, we don't need replication of services across the country. Um you know, you can have, you know, whatever you might call them, centres of excellence in different hospitals. Um, you know, New Zealand is a small country and we don't need to have this, this sort of level of redundancy, which also means that if you're not in one of the areas that, you know, has specialist services, you really are on the outer, which is what they call, you know, the postcode lottery. Mm. This shows up in a lot of cases. Um, mental health is one that used to get a lot of uh, coverage. Jess McKellen um, wrote about how, you know, very long waits, you know, for uh, psychological or psychiatric treatment um, would basically be reset to zero if you moved into a new district health board area. Now, if you're in Wellington, if you have serious mental health issues, you're, you're probably going to be moving around quite a lot. Most people in Auckland are moving around quite a lot. Um, and, you know, going over the road or going a suburb away could mean that you put the counter back to zero. So having these things more centralised actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, on that particular point of mental health, though, we... Um, seems to me that the devil will be in the detail, um, and that the you know the, the initial proposal, proposal there's one page on mental health, so maybe it offers an opportunity to kind of reorganise it in a way that works. But I mean, it probably only needs to be one sentence, which is spend some of that 1.9 billion dollars, which has been sitting in a 12-month term deposit in David Clark's name or whatever the fuck they've been doing with it, because they haven't been spending any of it on mental health services or treatment. Um, the National Party response is interesting. And Annabelle, initially Shane Retti came out in opposition to the establishment of the Māori Health Authority and his, the language he used was about a, a, a two-tier system and fragmented but then this morning Judith Collins has upped the ante quite considerably. There was a press release that came out which used the word segregation in various forms three times mm. and she Little also described it, as, described it as separatist which is mm. another, I mean, you know, you know. I mean, the reality is, is that we already do have two different healthcare systems. There's one for rich people who can afford to have private healthcare and one for the rest of the country. Riti's argument is one of semantics, which is it's about need, which is agreed, but the reality is is that the most in need are Māori. So it's just, you know, typical kind of... I'm not surprised by it. It's just National Party politics. I, I, I'm furious about it. I've defended Judith Collins a lot over the years. I've been a big fan. Um, and I just can't believe that this is what they're stooping to now. Um, just a bit of, you know, speaking of semantics, just to get our terms sort of straight, um, dog whistling is saying uh, healthcare should be based on need, not race. Mm. You know, that's a bland sort of statement that no sensible person could mm. disagree with. Mm. Uh, saying that having <laughs> an organisation that tries to lift Māori health outcomes is segregationist is just straight out race baiting. Uh, it's, you know, it, I think the thing that 
Some people in National don't remember when they think back to the good old days of Dombrash and the 25% polling boost or whatever, is that Dombrash didn't win the election. And Dombrash got dumped shortly after he lost the election because it was clear that with Dombrash as leader, they would never win an election because they would never get centre voters. Um, and... You know, maybe the strategy here is to try and crowd out ACT on the right flank, consolidate the vote, start looking like a contender again. Um, but there's no way forward for Judith Collins to win an election this way yeah. and form a government, and she and, and and she won't get a third chance. So I, I'm really confused well, about well, what's going on. It's okay. It? Apparently they're lining Selena up to replace her, so... <coughs> is, it, is, it, is it reading the comments too much? Is that what it is? Or is it... I mean, it struck me when I saw that, I thought, I just... it's This is the kind of thing you feel like John Key or the office of John Key would have just struck several lines of deep, vivid marker through those sort Key, of ideas. Key wouldn't have gone anywhere near it. When Key became leader after Don Brash, he started off with a series of speeches about child poverty. He did not go into race baiting, into talking about segregation or apartheid or whatever. Mm. Um, the, and it's interesting. I, I, I think in New Zealand politics, since Oriwa, you know, because mm. of the sort of tradition of Winston Peters going up in the poll when he race baits, and then the. Oriwa stands out as the sort of signal example. I think since then there's always been this kind of glass case around Parliament which says, you know, <laughs> in case of electoral emergency, <laughs> break glass and, you know, use the race card. And I, I, I think its effectiveness has been overestimated mm. uh, by people who remember that brief sugar rush mm. that Don Brash got. It is something that Labour flirted with in opposition. Phil Goff actually did a, a, a sort of one law for all speech very early on in his time as a uh, There was also a as Chinese sounding leader. names moment. <laughs> then there was the Chinese sounding names uh, which is slightly different because it's based on immigration rather than um, indigenous peoples. But you know it's something that Oppositions will often sort of veer towards before thinking a bit better of it. Collins has played chicken with a bad idea and she smashed right into it. Um, and whatever the immediate consequences, uh, the, the outlook for the next two years for going down that path is not good. Is this because, do you think she's saying it because of because she's under pressure in terms of her leadership with the threat of Luxton and... That, that's that's the only thing that I can think of. Um, she is a smart enough politician to know that there is no basis for what she's saying. Saying that, um, <laughs> so saying that ta targeting Maori healthcare is some kind of separatism or outside the bound. Healthcare is targeting, right? We screen people of different ages for different conditions and cancers because it would be a waste of money to screen the entire population. We identify risk factors. When you go to a doctor and present with pains in a certain area and then they send you off for an X-ray, that's just that's just them guessing based on characteristics that you share with other people who might have that condition, right? All of this is actually algorithmic. Well, it's, the, it's, so a bit, it's a bit like saying cervical screening discriminates against men. Well, I, I think even more so, it's like saying that, um, 
you know, prostate exam, you know, prostate exams for, what, for the over, over 55 or over whatever 55s, it is, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, uh, discriminates yeah. against 20 against year the, old the youngsters. Men. Well, I mean, in, in a way it does because well, they the, get a different treatment. I mean, but there's, I mean what, but you're, what you're looking at is identifying risk factors. What you're mm-hmm. describing sounds quite a lot like something called the social investment approach, Ex- which, exactly. which, you know, which of yeah. course we talked about John Key, but that was Bill English's like, sort of, you know, big passion in politics. And again, it did cross my mind. I wonder what Bill English would, would make of this. You know, segregation. <laughs> it, 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 it's just, it's incoherent, it's nonsensical. This is why Brash failed with it, because there's actually nothing behind it. And it will fail for Collins as well. And we can only hope that she, she just like with her, her brush with being a devout and open proselytizing Christian last year during the campaign, she wakes up next week and just sort of acts like it never happened or it was a bad dream. Um, briefly before we move on from that, it's sort of a stark focus, particularly given there's some really interesting and seems to me constructive work that is happening from two MPs in particular, Erica Stanford and Nicola Willis. Stanford on migrants in New Zealand and the realities they face in terms of what it seems very often an inconsistent, incoherent and unfair uh, rules. And then Nicola Willis is looking at in terms of the motel usage as this proxy for emergency housing and the reality of the living conditions in, in those circumstances. And they're, they're tricky ones because they absolutely do not demand very easy headlines, but it's, it's, it's important and real opposition work. Yeah, that's right. The National has done best by just being a boring, normal opposition, pulling on the loose threads of the government's program, finding the inevitable problems. You know, the government is dealing with a lot of complex issues right now, and there will be mistakes and there will be problems. And then you can make an argument that there are more than there should be. You know, Nicola Willis, well, (laughs) Nicola Willis actually got, (laughs) I think, quite unfairly attacked by Martima Davidson when she first raised issues with sort of concentrations of vulnerable people in emergency housing. And Martima Davidson came out yesterday and said, oh, actually, actually, maybe these places are not a great environment for kids to be in. <laughs> and they are causing some some spillover effects, which, which is inevitable when you concentrate a lot of people with high and complex needs together, which particularly, you know, former rough sleepers are, people with mental health issues, people with addiction issues. Um, and again, yeah, it doesn't demand, it, it doesn't, it, it's not amenable to easy answers, but for a long time, the government seemed basically completely unaware that there was even a problem. The other big story of the week was Nanaya Mahuta, the foreign minister, and her response to China or New Zealand's position on China, which is one that is under some tension and scrutiny as under Xi Jinping, China becomes, in the words of Nanaya Mahuta, uh, more assertive and punitive in the region. Mahuta gave a speech to the China Council, um, and that was the thrust of the speech, which was framed around the Tanifa and the dragon, or uh, He Tanifa He Tipua, Mm. which I thought was a new thing, but um, as Annabelle's going to tell me in a second, wasn't a new thing, um, a new framing, although it might make a fantastic children's book or $500 million Amazon TV show. Um, That was the thrust of the speech, but then in some questions... Subsequently, in response to a question from the spin-offs Justin Giovanetti, in fact, um, Mahuta answered a slightly different question and repudiated suggestions 
that New Zealand was somehow stepping away from the Five Eyes Alliance, uh, which is, of course, primarily a security and intelligence alliance and was somehow uh, betraying the, its, its allies in that group. She made it clear that New Zealand had an independent foreign policy, became a little bit of a muddle. There was a lot of quite bilious commentary in the UK and Australia suggesting that the, the woke Ardern administration had abandoned its Western allies and was allowing China to get away with things. Annabelle, the Mahuta doctrine, if there is such a thing, she's still relatively early into her term as foreign minister, is predicated, as she's made clear in a couple of speeches now, um, very much uh, on Māori tanga, on Manaki tanga and Te Tiriti values. Part of the tension comes up, of course, in relation to the, the indigenous people of Xinjiang and the, the Uyghurs and the extent to which she, she is willing to challenge China on those human rights questions, some of which she articulated in that speech. How do you rank her performance so far? I think she's done a good job and I think that, you know, the, the reference to Tanifa and Dragon, that was actually something that Peter Sharples used back in, in 2013 and mm. I think that, you know, um, countries like China would, you know, understand a culturally nuanced response like that and there is value that she brings to the table in terms of how you communicate and, and negotiate with, with people of colour. I think in the UK they've described us as selling our souls to China and, and there is absolutely an element of truth in that we have because basically our economy is completely geared up around um, dairy and they're the ones who want it. I have to say, um, without a doubt, there's obviously huge concerns about human rights abuses in China. Having said that, um, you know, Australia and the UK and the US aren't exactly shining bastions of of, um, of 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 how you treat people. I mean, look at the indigenous experience in Australia, where they still have worse outcomes in every barrel you look in. Um, the way people are being treated on Manus Island, Christmas Island. Obviously, it's not the same scale of what's happening to the Uyghurs and so on, but it's still appalling. Um, the UK, huge producers of weapons. The US, I mean, we all know what's going on in the US. So I think they've got a little bit of a, a cheek to be calling us out over that. But the other thing too is, actually, though, those guys have completely neglected their relationships with the Pacific and as a result, we're seeing more and more of the Chinese influence because when the Chinese put money into the Pacific, mm. it comes with seemingly no strings attached, but it's not that kind of paternalistic colonial approach to investment that New Zealand used to love to do. And um, and so as a result, you know, they're now worried China's growing influence, all of that going on. But, I mean, they need to pony up, like put some poot there where your mouth is and the same with New Zealand when Brexit happened they should have been the UK should have been negotiating a free trade deal with us so they can't not put their they can't not pony up and then complain when we're taking care of the relationship with our major trade partner yeah and i think that there is a difference in kind between china and any of the the five eyes uh, countries um, which is that they are a totalitarian state 
um, which is, you know, that's that's a difference, I think. Um, unfortunately, yeah, as, as you say, they're our major trading partner. Um, New Zealand... New Zealand's foreign policy really has to be kind of uh, basically hiding under covers while giants fight, really, in terms of the geo- mm. geostrategic jostling between the United States and China. Um, you know, Nanaya Mahuta is right. Five Eyes is an intelligence-sharing arrangement. That's all it is. It's not NATO. Uh, it's, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not, not NATO. It's, it's not a federation yeah. of, of democracies. It's five countries with broadly simmer, similar st- strategic interests. Spying uh, on your ship. So it's just, yeah, that's right. Sh- 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 sharing, Reading your email. Sharing intel. Yeah. And, we, and we get lots and lots of uh, intel. Yeah. And, ex- and everyone likes to know secrets. <laughs> Um, and, and in exchange for that, we can we can we can spy more effectively on the Pacific than uh, than our than our partners can. But it doesn't tie us in trade. I mean, if it tied us in trade, we wouldn't have tariffs on our aluminium in the United mm. States, right? Mm. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a bit too much for these countries to expect. Re- reciprocity on our end only exactly, as a result of uh, Exactly, <laughs> the cheek of Australia. I mean, look at what's happening with our 501s and then they basically accuse us of being disloyal by not and, sucking up to I mean, the... Look, and in Naya Mahuta's defence, China is not new at the human rights abuses game uh, and it... It, it's never really brought up that directly. You know, Helen Clark would always say, oh, no, we strongly addressed it Raised in my it. private yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but it, it does, I think it does become a little bit Russell sharper. Russell, Russell uh, Norman never got his flag back. I mean, there's just been a succession <laughs> of indignities for the New Zealand policy. Jerry never got his pandas. <laughs> I mean... You know, what about that? I mean, to be fair to, to you know, the Australian foreign minister when they met didn't condemn. She was quite dipl- diplomatic about it and said that, you know, the New Zealand and Australia were very much on the same page. Um, the, I guess the question really for New Zealand's foreign policy more broadly is that it is a bit of a high wire act to try and, as you say, to mix a metaphor, bend to keep your head down behind the rock while the, 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 the salvos go back and forth. But at some point... Is New Zealand going to have to take a side? And that's the the pressure. The pressure is on about whether or not that's sustainable. And the other thing that mostly went unremarked, and again is not totally new, but Nanaya Mahuta did say in that very speech that New Zealand businesses, New Zealand exporters needed to make sure all their eggs went in one basket. So it's it's a real thing, right, That, that at some point we can't have that level of trade dependence on one country that is again, to repeat her words, becoming more, and we know what it means, assertive in the region. We just can't afford to because it's screwing our environment. Dairy is screwing our environment, and ultimately it's taxpayers that have to clean up the water and all of that stuff, so yeah. Did you want to address the other Nanaima Huta project, Ben Thomas, which is the review of the local government? The abolition of local Your other government. Passion. Your other passion. The... The, her legacy project, um, which is a review into local government, and during her speech she said some people might ask if local government isn't responsible for three waters and isn't responsible for resource consenting, what is it for? And 
temporarily I allowed myself to dream that she was about to say she was putting a kibosh on the whole thing. Mm. Um, but instead it was just a review. Um, and... Uh, I am hopeful that the reviewers will sort of come up with a, a list of busy work for local cranks to get onto, you know, uh, library redecorations, uh, annual fishing competitions, uh, a parade, maybe a parade, parade. Town, town pet beauty mm. contest. Maybe she'll I, be like Andrew Little, maybe the... the the review will happen yeah. and the findings will be, look, we should only have like eight councils yeah. and then Nanaya will be like, nah. Just say too we'll many. just have none. Yeah. And then a big fat Māori council on the side. The Department of Parks and Surge. That is actually one interesting thing is that uh, bo- both of those announcements talked about, you know, co-design with uh, Māori. Um, the, the, this is the health one and the local government one. On the the web page where they were talking about the review, the review set out very clearly um, how it would proceed, sort of based on the cabinet circular about um, you know tetidity consistent policy design, which is a, a circular that went around a couple of years ago, I think, to to all departments and ministers uh, and gets adhered to it to varying degrees, I think, <laughs> depending on who's doing it. Um, but Mahuta has has set out very clear principles for engaging with the treaty partner on the, the design. Um, she's really, I, I think, uh, Three Waters was a similar one where I think she's setting, in, uh, she's setting a very high standard for consultation you know, what we used to call consultation, but is actually veering into co-design with the treaty partner. And two of the four principles for the review were about the treaty relationship. Uh, Because in in the past, I think people have sort of focused, I think, a bit too much on this sort of, you know, do we want Māori wards? Do we not want Māori wards? I mean, adding extra useless elected officials to the current useless elected officials on councils isn't going to change much. Um, What really changes is the engagement at every level with, you know, groups who are sort of intrinsically linked to the natural resources in the surrounding area. Um, And hopefully we'll see some movement on that for co-designing the pet beauty contest. And parade. I'd like that to is the only thing local government is left to do. I'm be judged by Selena Gomez. If everything mm. works out as planned. I mean, Selena's been through a lot. <laughs> <laughs> she still loves Justin. It is Justin, eh, baby? You know, like there's a lot. Sleeping with the fishes, Gomez. After Jacinda's finished with her. This is gone by lunchtime. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.